welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31. We've had a short break from our series in Genesis during the the Christmas holidays, but this morning we're going to jump right back in with Jacob's story and the beginning of the people of Israel, their their beginning in Jacob. So far in Jacob's story, we've, we've seen some really interesting stuff. We've seen heel snatching from the wound. We've seen sibling rivalry. We saw a a red-haired man eating red stew, and you remember the whole birthright story. And another man then clothed in goat skins. He literally put on goat skins, these furry skins, and he wore another man's misfit clothing. It's quite comic, yet sad. We've also witnessed wedding day scandals, birth wars, and we last saw some strange animal husbandry uh, in one of the previous stories. If God wasn't revealed to us at every point in this human dumpster fire of relationships, then we would be tempted to think that this was just some ancient version of a soap opera. I was about to start listing different soap operas, but I didn't want you to think I watched them. So I'm just going to say soap opera. But as we've seen, God is working and blessing, and even in the midst of the human mess, this is mess, this is human mess. But God has been working. God is calling a people to forsake the rat race of this world and instead to follow him into his rest. That's what we've been seeing over and over. And this will be the emphasis as we head um, into God's command for Jacob to leave the household of Laban and return to Canaan. So this morning we're going to look at Jacob's exodus. Jacob's exodus. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to bless the reading of his word, which he commands. He says, let us be a church of reading the word together. Devote ourselves to this. And as the word is taught, preached, proclaimed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I again thank you for your word. Thank you that we are not left to ourselves to just figure out what is best for your church, for our evangelism, for our own homes Or that we're not just left to do what seems best in everyone's eyes, but instead that you've given us your word, your truths, which have been proclaimed. I thank you that the people of God gathered here together, that that we find unity around this word. I pray that today it would be, be read and that it would be taught with conviction and clarity. Lord, would you overlook my flaws And would you present and proclaim through the Spirit your word to each one's heart this morning? Would you do that clearly, powerfully, cutting to the deepest parts of our souls, cutting away doubt, cutting away fear, and replacing it with the healthy growth of of love, of renewing our minds as we read and as we sung this morning, that your truth would be proclaimed once again this morning, and that we would cling to it, hope in it, trust in it, that we'd find life and rest in the truth 
of who our God is and what you have done and will do. We love you. We ask you now for your help. Amen. In Genesis 31, we find Jacob still living in exile in Mesopotamia, which is far to the north of Canaan where his father's household is. So instead of living in Canaan with his family, he is kind of in exile to the north with in Laban's, his uncle Laban's household. That's where we're at in the story in Genesis. And as we've seen, Laban has cheated and swindled and attempted to take advantage of Jacob at every turn. So that's where we come in the story. We also see, though, that despite Laban's constant attempts to deceive, God has still blessed Jacob to the point that Laban has now begun to decrease in wealth, while Jacob's family has increased and his prosperity has increased, his physical prosperity has increased. We saw last time in Genesis 31, verses 1 through 16, that as Laban begins to envy Jacob's prosperity, God gives Jacob the command to leave, to go out from Laban's territory, out from under his rule in this land to the north, to, to go out from this and to return home to Canaan, the land of his father. The key thing to remember from last time is that God is clearly described as the one who gave every good thing to Jacob in this land. God is the one who gave him every good thing. Laban testifies to it. Jacob says it. And both Leah and Rachel, this is Jacob's wives, both of them confess that God is the one who has done all these good things for for Jacob. God is the one who has brought this good into Jacob's life. In verse 16, for example, Leah and Rachel confess to their husband Jacob while they're having a conversation out in the field about, hey, are are we going to do this? Are we going to go back south to Canaan while talking like this? In verse 16 of our chapter, we read Leah and Rachel's words. They say, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. These are words of faith. They are pointing to God as the one who has done this. That's the key takeaway from last time. And with this in mind, let's jump into our passage for today through the rest of the chapter. Genesis 31, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17 through 55. This is a long section. And I'm going to just kind of, to break it up, I'm going to stop as we're reading through. I'm going to stop at certain points and give a little bit of clarity, a little bit of like, what is this weird conversation talking about here? Like, I'm going to try and help explain, make a couple points of application. So bear with me as I, as I stop you. It's going to be stop-go traffic for a little bit. Just bear with me through these verses. Verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. They agreed to go south, so he's, he's preparing for the long journey. Verse 18. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired in Padan Aram, that's where Laban lives. And now he's ready to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Verse 19. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Let's stop there for a second. So Laban has gone away to the field to go shear his sheep. This is a huge undertaking depending on the size of the flock. And he'd be gone for a couple days. And and Jacob is like, now's the time. He's gone for a couple days. I can get out of here in secrecy. 
But then we read, we read that Rachel stole her father's household gods. So this is Laban. So Laban is Rachel's father. She goes into his house or his tent and, he steal, and she steals his gods. Like most pagans of his day, Laban is a polytheist, which means that he believes there are many gods, many gods, poly, many. He doesn't deny the existence of Jacob's God, Yahweh. He doesn't deny the existence of that God, but Laban believes Yahweh is only one among many gods. And these gods compete amongst one another and they have their territories. They might be the, the sea god or the god of the land or the god of the mountains or the god of, of this or that or whatever. And so Laban's trying to appease whichever gods are in his region. So that's the, the idea of this household shrine. So, he, so to appease the gods of his region, Laban has a household shrine where he pays homage to small replicas or small little statues of the gods. And these small figurines or statues are what Rachel steals. She steals them and she puts them in her bags with her. We can't say for sure why Rachel steals the household gods. I, I read a lot of different opinions, but in, in my understanding, my opinion we, she most likely steals these figurines because she is still impacted by her parents' superstition and holds on to their, to, to some part of her, still holds on to the belief that these figurines, these statues will help protect her family or will prosper her in her way to some degree or in some way. So most likely... That is why she steals her father's household gods. Remember, she grew up with these gods. She was led as a child to pray and offer incense and things to these gods. So most likely this is still, still clinging to her, even though she is married to Jacob, whose God is Yahweh alone. So that's where we're at now. Let's keep reading verse 20. The next verse says, And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean. Now this word tricked, is the right translation. It is a good translation. But literally in the Hebrew, it means he stole the heart of Jacob. So there's a little play on words going here. Rachel went into the household shrine and stole the gods of Jacob. i sorry, of, of Laban. But Jacob here is stealing the heart of Laban. That's the literal words in the Hebrew, which means tricked. But it's, it's showing this, this double play of Rachel stealing the gods and Jacob's now stealing the things that are dear to, to, to Laban, and he's running. He's running. So, verse 20, And Jacob tricked Laban, or stole the heart of Laban the Aramean. It does mean trick, but um, it stole the heart of. By not telling him that he intended to flee. So this is done in secrecy, in fear that what would happen. Verse 21, Jacob fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates. Some of your translations may say the river, but as you're coming down from Mesopotamia, if you're going south, it just is the river. It's just such a massive reality in their geography. They just call it the river, but it's the river Euphrates. And he set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. This is heading south towards Canaan. When it was told Laban on the third day, three days have passed, that Jacob had fled he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. So this is a huge undertaking. They've traveled from north Mesopotamia, across the Euphrates, and now they're traveling down into Canaan. They're on the northern side of Canaan. This is a huge um, 
It's like a seven-day chase that's happening. Verse 24, But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Verse 25, And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the swords? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my house, my gods? So let's stop there. There's a lot of tension in this, this part of the scene. Laban has just chased down Jacob, and the passage uses military language like pursued followed close after and overtook to describe the possibility of a coming battle. So you, you have the idea that those who are with Jacob are fleeing, his household and you know all the servants and, the, and his family. And then also Laban, he gets his kinsmen. Like he, he gets all of those who are with Laban. It's kind of like a war band that's traveling south chasing Laban. So it's, it's really showing the tension of the possibility of a coming battle between the two. We might ask, why? Why is Laban chasing him like this? But Laban is furious because so much wealth in both people and livestock have slipped from his clenched fist. So just we, we know that Jacob has, out, has far out-prospered Laban now. But Laban was still seeing this kind of like as his fiefdom. If he, when he opened the tent and he just looked at all the livestock and all the people milling around in his Kind of like in his fiefdom, you can imagine him thinking, I'm, I'm kind of the emperor of this little land. I'm kind of the king. I'm, the, I'm the, the oldest person here. I'm the father of all of this. All this is mine. And in one, at one moment, 70, 80% maybe of all of that power and influence and wealth and people just left. He came back and it's just an empty ghost town now compared to what it was. So he is furious that he's lost this that his, his influence has been so diminished. But we see that when the two parties meet, Laban is restrained by God from doing Jacob violence. So since Laban's hands are tied, he, he comes up with this fictional scenario where he would have gladly sent Jacob away with everything he had. And to, on top of it, he would have thrown him a party. He's like, why didn't you give me the opportunity to do this? But we know, and Jacob knows, that that's not really Laban's character, that he would easily let someone go like that and let all that wealth and power and esteem leave so easily. So Jacob gives the reason why he snuck away. He says in verse 31, Jacob answered and said to Laban, I snuck away. He's talking about why he snuck away. I, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. This is what Jacob thinks the true reality would have been. He came into Laban's household empty, penniless, a, a, a refugee pretty much. And he says if Laban had his way, he would have left Laban's household the exact same way. That's what Jacob feared would happen. 
But next, in verse 32, Jacob, we see Jacob now is offended by the, 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 the very last thing Laban has said. He's offended at the idea of stealing Laban's idols. So he says next, I know the verses are kind of squished together, but next he answers Laban's second accusation of Jacob stealing his idols. He says in verse 32, Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, all these witnesses, point out what I have that is yours and take it. But then the passage says, Now Jacob did not know that Rachel stole them. He did not know. Verse 33, So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants. But he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she, Rachel, said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he, Laban, searched, but did not find the household gods. I believe there is some irony at play in this part of our narrative. Rachel, most likely, has stolen Laban's idols in order to guarantee an extra level of protection and prosperity for herself. That's why she stole them. But in reality, in the, in the story, we see that the possession of these false gods have condemned her to death. Her false desire for these idols, her, her belief in these false gods, and her hope in them have condemned her to death, according to Jacob's words. Jacob said, whoever has these will die in front of who knows how many hundreds of witnesses he said that. These idols have now condemned her, the thing she hoped in. But there is even more irony here. The irony continues. I believe God is putting on display the weakness of all other gods. Rachel finds herself in the position where the only way she can retain the protective presence of these idols and save her own life, the only way she can do this is if she uses her female cycle to protect these idols. She's using her menstruation to protect the idols. That's what this passage is politely calling the way of women is upon me. Now in their culture, in most cultures, when a, when a, when a lady was in her cycle, she was considered ceremonially unclean and a man was not to approach her because then he would be unclean for a certain amount of days. This was the reality of their worship in those days. So when Laban heard this, he's like, all right, you know, you, you, you're you, and I'm going to move on now and keep looking through, through the tents. That's kind of the situation Rachel's using. She's using this scenario to protect these idols which are underneath her in the saddles. Is this not foolishness to think these gods have any power to save? This is the irony that the story of Genesis is pointing out, that these idols are so weak, so fragile, so need and protecting that they need this to protect them. That is what Genesis is pointing out, I believe. Truly, there is only one sovereign God 
who rules over every lesser being. And this is one of the lessons that the chosen family is learning and will continue to learn through the story of Genesis. Looking back at the narrative, Laban searches everywhere but finds nothing that has been stolen. And now Laban looks like a fool in front of both his his kinsfolk, those who came with him, his war band, and he looks like a fool in front of Rachel's, I mean, Jacob's family. And now, because he looks so foolish, this vindicates Jacob. And Jacob's pent-up indignation and anger is unleashed on Laban. Now, the scriptures are recounting this. It's, it's telling us the story. It's not saying this is the right way to treat your father-in-law when you're upset with him. You know, this is not... Not what Genesis is saying, but uh, let's read what happens. This pent-up indignation that Jacob has. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods, and what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten your rams or your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself from my, my hand. You required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night. My sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. This is a deceiver. This is someone who has oppressed Jacob. Verse 42, If the God of my father the God of Abraham, and here this title that Jacob gives, and the fear of Isaac. That's a title that's unique to Jacob that he gives to Yahweh. The fear of Isaac. If he had not been on my side, surely now you have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Let's stop there. This is a key moment in the life of Jacob. He believes and is bold enough to proclaim it to others that it is God, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, that he is the one who is on his side and who has given him every good thing. It's a repeat of last week's main, main emphasis. God is the giver of every good thing he possessed. Jacob then stings Laban's pride with the statement that God has been with me but God has rebuked you. Laban is now backed into a corner and now attempts to salvage as much dignity as he can in front of his men. Verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, Laban is, is in a corner and he's like a badger right now. He says, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. It's a little bit, a little bit crazy. You know, like, I understand but now he realizes the absurdity of his own statements, and he says, But what can I do this day for these my daughters, or for their children whom they have born? And he becomes a, a nice guy in verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Verse 45. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar 
And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. So what we have is a pillar and a heap of stones. There's two, two separate things we're talking about. A big pillar and a heap of stones. Verse 47. Laban called it Jega Sahaditha, but Jacob called it Galid. Both these names mean heap of witness. So they're naming the heap of rocks now, a heap of witness. Verse 48, Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid. And Mizpah, now he's naming the, the, the pillar, which means Mizpah means watch post or watch tower. So it's a watchtower and a heap of witness. Two things. For he said, in verse 49, For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. We can't be too dogmatic about this, but it appears in in the Hebrew that Laban is calling on his multiple gods to judge between them. Verse 53 could be translated in the singular or the plural when it's talking about the God or the gods. So it could be translated the gods of Abraham and the gods of Nahor, the gods of their father, judge between us. That is also another possible translation. But what, what the reason we think he might be calling on multiple different deities is because Jacob rejects his, his offer of who we should swear by. And instead, he says, um, he calls on the single God, whom he calls the fear of his father Isaac. That's the end of verse 53. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. He says, I'm not swearing by all your gods or your, the way you see the world and, and who reigns over it. No, I'm swearing by the singular Yahweh, the, the fear of his father Isaac. Verse 54, let's keep reading. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. That's the end of our passage in this narrative. There's much we can learn in this episode of Jacob's life. We, we see that God is with his people even during persecution, even during human persecution. We also see that God's people should always praise God for his steadfast love. God is steadfast in love. And we should give him the glory for every good thing in our lives. This is a theme repeated in this week as well, in this passage. We also see that false gods and false loves, like what Rachel had for these figurines, these these household gods, that these false loves only bring the sentence of death and are powerless to protect us or bring lasting joy. It's one of the main points in this passage. We also see through Laban that the one who attempts to save his life or save his stuff 
through greed, deceit, and the affliction of others, that those people will ultimately lose their life. It will be taken away from them. Only in placing your life in God's hands will you find life everlasting that can never be taken away from you. And we see that through Laban contrasted with Jacob. There are many lessons we could learn from this chapter. The most significant, I believe, being the repeated truth that God is the one who chooses, calls, redeems, blesses, and protects, and brings safely to the end. Isn't that the flow of Jacob's life so far? And I say this is a repeated truth, not just because it's been repeated in Jacob's life, but because we've seen it repeated from Adam and Eve in the garden all the way through to the life of Jacob here. It's been repeated over and over again in Genesis. But this scene in Jacob's life plays a special part in the story of redemption because it further develops the biblical theme of a divinely appointed exodus. A divinely appointed exodus. So let's look at this biblical theme of exodus and how this story plays plays a part in this theme. The word exodus means to go out or the road out. So exodus is to go out or it's the road out. And biblically, exodus speaks of God bringing his people out of slavery or persecution, bringing them out and into his presence, his rest. That's what Exodus is talking about, that idea or this theme in Scripture. We see God using the same kind of language in verse 3, this this idea of coming out. God says, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Go out. I will be with you. That's in in verse 3 of our chapter. And again, God says to Jacob in verse 13, Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred with the applied promise, I will be with you at every step. I will take you out. Remember, it was because of persecution that Jacob initially fled north to Padan Aram where Laban lived. And God did provide for him in this land of polytheists. God did provide for him there. But as Jacob dwelt in this foreign land, Laban went from being his friend, like welcoming him with a kiss, to becoming his oppressor, ultimately ending with Jacob running for his life across the river Euphrates with Laban in hot pursuit. Through this series of events, God is telling his story to his people. He's preparing the family of Jacob for another exodus that was coming in only a few generations. In the new year, we will eventually come to a place where the family of Jacob flees to Egypt because of a terrible famine in Canaan. They're in Canaan and they experience persecution of 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 like a, a natural time. It's a famine and they flee to Egypt and Egypt will welcome them as friends. And God will provide for Israel during their time in Egypt. This is where the book of Genesis will end. Israel, is, as a nation, is in Egypt. But we find out in the very next book, entitled Exodus in our English Bibles, that before long, Israel's Egyptian friends become oppressors and force them into slavery. 
The picture is quickly painted in Exodus of Israel in a foreign land, helpless, misused, crying out for God to deliver them from this land and from their oppressors. And what we find is that the biblical theme of Exodus in Israel's history has now reached a climax. God has told the story before in the lives of the patriarchs, but now he will publicly proclaim the truths of this story to the known world by bringing low the most powerful nation in the known world at that time, which was Egypt. God is going to publicly put on display to the known world these truths. Let's look at some truths, at these truths that are told in Jacob's Exodus, which then are powerfully put on display in Israel's exodus out of Egypt. So both of these truths are put on, or these truths are put on display in both these stories in a climactic, escalating way in the narrative of Scripture. First, the first truth, God will deliver his people from the land of bondage. As God said to oppress Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindreds, I will be with you. He's saying, I will take you out of this land. Just so, he sends Moses to the people of Israel. Moses is the human figure who led Israel out of Egypt. God says to Moses and sends Moses with the people of Israel, saying in Exodus 3, verse 7 through 8, God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The truth is that God can and God will deliver his people from the land of bondage. The second truth, God will save his people from their oppressors. God said to Jacob, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. God sees, and the implication is God is acting on Jacob's behalf. I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of of your kindred. God is going to take him out from under his oppressor. That's Genesis 31, verses 12 through 13. And then God, in a dream later on in Jacob's stories, warns Laban, who is chasing Jacob. God says to Laban, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And this is often, this phrase, either I can't say anything either good or bad, is often used in the Old Testament. In, in relation to God saying, this is my doing. God says, this is my doing. You had better be careful how you respond. Within only a few generations, the oppressor of God's people would escalate from greedy Laban, just this, this unkind, greedy uncle. It would escalate from Laban to Pharaoh who was the supreme leader of the most powerful kingdom in the known world. And in a human perspective, from a human perspective, this seems like an impossible scenario where Israel are slaves, powerless, slaves to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
But God is the author of the story. That's what we have to remember. God is the author of the story. And he wants all the world to know that he is the one and only God who will save his people from their oppressors no matter how strong. So God says to Moses, while Moses was still an outcast, a fugitive in the land of Midian. So he's outside Egypt. He's in the wilderness somewhere. He's a nobody. God comes to him and says to him, before he steps a single foot back in Egypt, or before Moses speaks a single word to Pharaoh, God says these words to Moses. This is from Exodus 4, verses 21 through 23. God says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is the point. God can and will save his people from their oppressors, no matter how terrible they may be. The third truth. God will have victory over every false god. God will have victory over every false god. In Jacob's exodus, the household idols that Laban enshrined and worshipped were unable to keep Jacob from increasing while Laban decreased. They were unable to prevent their own theft. Rachel just walked in and stole them. And they ultimately had insult added to injury as they need Rachel's protection as she sits on them, claiming to be ceremonially unclean. In Israel's climactic exodus from Egypt, it was not simply household idols that God was humiliating. In Egypt, the entire world of imaginable gods were exposed as powerless, subservient, and unable to stop the wrath of Yahweh, the great I Am. That is the story of Exodus. Egypt's river gods, animal gods, the sun, moon, and moon gods, the gods of life and death, they were all humiliated and shown to be pretenders before the fear of Isaac, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The biblical theme of Exodus teaches the truth that God can and will have victory over every false God. The fourth truth and the final one I want to point out in both these stories is that God will bring his people into his rest. In Jacob's Exodus, God kept his covenant bringing Jacob south across the Euphrates River and led him into the land that had been promised to him and to his descendants. Remember God's words to him some 20 years before. God said in Genesis 28, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. He's speaking about Canaan. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be, shall be blessed. We've heard this many times given to Abraham, Isaac, now Jacob. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised 
you. That was God's promise to Jacob and God fulfilled his promise by bringing him south across Euphrates back into the land of Canaan. Now we realize if you've read further on in Genesis that Jacob's rest in the land of Canaan may not have been complete or permanent, but this was still a powerful moment in the life of Jacob as God kept his promise to bring him back into the land of promise. Very similar, similarly, God kept his covenant to Israel, taking them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea on dry ground. He then led them on their way to the promised land where they would be welcomed into his rest as he ruled them as their God. God will bring his people into his rest. Now you may be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, I'm really happy for Jacob and for Israel. I'm glad that God delivered them from bondage, saved them from their oppressors, had victory over false gods, and that God brought Israel into his rest, at least for a time in Canaan. They had some some good years in Canaan. But what does this have to do with me today? What does this have to do with me as I see the world around me in chaos, as I see people oppressing one another, as I see people over here being oppressed, and as I realize that I myself have even maybe been guilty of oppressing my, my fellow man at times. Think about the last time you raised your voice to your spouse or your children, you lost your temper, you were angry when you stole or lied or cheated somebody, oppressing another. So how does this story in Jacob's life, or the theme of Exodus speak to me? What does it have to do with me? How does the biblical Exodus have any bearing on my life seeing that true, lasting rest seems more like a fairy tale than reality? The answer is that the biblical narrative of Exodus has everything to do with you and me and every other person alive today. Because God did not stop his story with the exodus of Israel. That was not the final and ultimate exodus. No, God's story does not end there. Jacob's exodus and Israel's exodus were increasingly climactic in the history of the world. But in God's story of redemption, there is an even greater climax that occurred when God the Father sent his Son into the world to save his people from their sins. When the Son of God took on human flesh, being born as a baby, living the perfect life, and dying the death mankind deserves, and then rising victorious over both sin and death, when he accomplished that, he accomplished the greatest exodus which all previous stories of exodus were merely pointing to. They were shadows of that final exodus that Christ would accomplish. Let's look at how the the four truths we looked at, how they are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The first truth. The Son of God didn't come to deliver us from bondage in Padan, Aram, or Egypt. He didn't come to, to, to save us from a physical land somewhere No, he came to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness in this present age, which is destined to be cast into the lake of fire on the day of judgment. That's the land or the kingdom that Christ came to deliver us from. 
God has delivered his people from the land of bondage. That's the first truth. The second truth. The prince of heaven didn't leave his glory in order to save his people from Laban or Pharaoh, some human human oppressor. No, he came to save us from the oppression of our sin guilt and from the penalty of death that condemned us. This weight of condemnation that would drag us into the ground and into hell. Christ came to save us from that oppressor. God has saved his people from their oppressors. The third truth. When Christ died on the cross, he crossed the dark river of death and came out the other side three days later, vindicated, victorious, and alive forevermore. What did the false gods think about that? At the cross, Satan thought he had won. Can you imagine the demonic celebration as the prince of heaven hung, naked, lifeless, cold in death? Can you imagine their demonic celebration? They knew who he was. They were angels in heaven before the fall, in his presence, in his glory. And they now see him as a a man, dirty, bleeding, naked and cold in death. I don't even really want to imagine their celebration. But oh, how they must have trembled in fear when the stone was rolled away. When the stone was rolled away and the lamb that was slain walked out of the tomb in victory. Satan was not merely exposed that day as the false god of this world. No, on that day his head was crushed His power to condemn me and you was removed, and his end was brought near. God is victorious over the false gods of this world and over the false god of this world. And the fourth truth, and finally, when Jesus left this earth, he promised to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to lead and guide his people until he comes again and brings us into his eternal rest into this new heaven and the new earth that he has promised that he's going to prepare for us. This Holy Spirit that he's left with us is the seal of our adoption into the family of God and the guarantee of our entrance into his eternal rest. God has guaranteed our entrance into eternal rest, into his eternal rest. Let's not take the, we should never take the Holy Spirit for granted, which he has left in us. It is our sign of our adoption, a seal of our adoption. It's the the picture of a king taking that wax and and smashing his seal. He's the only one who has the seal onto a wax uh, form, which seals the letter. And nobody can, can open that letter on pain of death unless the king permits it. And he says that the Holy Spirit is like that seal on our hearts, which will get to heaven with him. That's what he calls the Holy Spirit, the seal of our adoption and the guarantee of our entrance into his eternal rest. What a gift. What a promise. What a hope. It is my hope. My goodness is not my hope. If I had my goodness to lean on, then I would live every day in fear and trembling because I know I would be a condemned man. Let us rest on God's seal of adoption and his guarantee 
for his people. In conclusion, we should think on this word exodus and remember that for a Christian, the word exodus should bring to mind the very foundation of our own redemption, our purchase at great price from slavery to sin and death. This is what we, we talked about last week that, or a couple weeks ago, this idea of redemption being purchased at great price from slavery to sin and death. That's what exodus should bring to mind for the Christian. Christians are those who have been called out of the world and into the family of God. Again, another picture of Exodus, called out unto God. That's what the Greek word translated church means, this ecclesia. It means the called out assembly. That's us. We are part of that assembly. We are the church of God. We are the called out ones. We've been called out of this world of darkness unto the Father of lights. First Peter, in First Peter chapter 2, Peter puts it this way in his letter to the churches. So he's speaking to us. If you're here today born again into Christ, if you're in Christ, he's speaking to you and to me. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, and get this, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. We were once, all of us, scattered unbelievers rebel to God. That is how we enter this world, scattered, broken, without unity. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. We were beings without mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's talking about in Christ. And now Peter will give his appeal to every soul who has been redeemed by the exodus of Jesus. In verse 11 of 1 Peter 2, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter pleads with us to abstain from evil passions and to live honorable lives in a fallen world so that when others witness this new life, the exodus in our own souls that Jesus has purchased for us, that they will glorify God as good, as powerful to save, as faithful to his covenant, that God is good. That When others look at us, that's the point, that they would glorify God. Some of them will come to faith because they see what Christ has done in you. Others will not glorify God in life. But every soul will praise Him as good one day. One day, every soul will praise God when Jesus returns in power to bring His people into His eternal rest. This is what the Scripture says of every soul who has ever lived. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. This is what they say of, of Jesus and how every soul will praise God through him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. God has highly exalted Jesus 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the reality that we look forward to. We long for that day. And let's pray now that God would send Jesus home. Or send him back for us to take us home soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. What a joy. What a hope. What a testament throughout history of a God who has not forsaken his people, but instead a God who stays steadfast in your love, even in our human mess. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. I pray that as we think about your truths and your word, that we would be transformed in our being, that our hearts and our lives would be transformed by the renewal of our minds as our minds think and meditate and ponder on the truths of your word that our minds would be renewed and that our lives then would be transformed because of these truths that have become ours lord would you do that for each one of your your people here today and if there is anyone sitting here today that does not know the lasting joy and peace of, of being purchased by Jesus Christ and, and promised an eternity with you in heaven and the new earth. If anyone sitting here does not know that peace and joy, I pray that they would not go another day without falling on their knees before the one saving God and crying out to you for your salvation, for your forgiveness confessing our sins and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the Savior of the world. Oh, Jesus, come soon. Come quickly. Take us home to be with you. We long for that day. Amen. Amen.